Hi, I'm Steve Lance, your host of the Capitol Report on NTD News. If you have not done so yet, please hit that subscribe button to stay up to date with all of the latest news coming out of the nation's capital and beyond. Are more and more American children identifying as a different gender without their parents' knowledge? A new report finds that more than three million students are now allowed to change their name and pronouns at school without parental consent. The new report comes from the Defense of Freedom Institute for Policy Studies. It finds that eight of the nation's 20 largest school districts allow students to use their preferred names and gender pronouns at school without parental knowledge or consent. They include New York City's Department of Education, Los Angeles Unified School District, and Chicago Public Schools. Only three of the largest 20 school districts have readily available policies requiring parental notification if a child does want to use a different name. And joining us to discuss this study, we have the author of the report, Angela Marabito, is spokesperson for the Defense of Freedom Institute for Policy Studies and a former U.S. Department of Education press secretary, and we are happy to have her on to discuss. Angela Morabito, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Of course, Angela. So if I could just ask you, what is the rationale behind allowing students to change their uh, names and pronouns without consulting their parents? And just how widespread of an issue is this? Well, I'll answer the second part first. It is more widespread than we ever knew. There are more than 3 million students in, in America from kindergarten all the way through their senior year of high school who are allowed to change their name and pronouns at school without their parents knowing, but not to take an Advil from the school nurse. And the rationale for this is really just uh, school bureaucrats who think they know better than parents. They think parents can be cut out of the conversation and that they should be the ones in charge of major decisions in a child's life. And that's just not true. This report is really about the acute need to put control back in the hands of parents. And to your point, how are schools addressing the concerns of parents who ultimately object to their you know, child changing their name and pronouns without their knowledge? Well, oftentimes the school just hides it. We've seen multiple instances of districts telling teachers, hey, if you have to call home to a child's parents, use their name on their other, you know, their legal forms, use, use the uh, pronouns that align with their uh, sex as, as identified at birth. Um, so, so there's a lot of secrecy that, that goes on here with schools willing to conceal what's going on. Uh, there are also school districts that come right out and say, if the parents object, we do not care. The school district will, will uh, go along with whatever the student says, even if the parents say, no, this is wrong, we don't want it. So what are the legal implications here? And as you mentioned, uh, you know, why is parental consent required for access to over-the-counter medication, but not for changing one's name or pronouns? Well, the medication rules come from a much more sane time uh, in American education policy when the rights of parents were recognized and respected. Uh, now you have schools saying, oh, well, it's about privacy law, uh, that we can't disclose a child's transgender status. But that's just not true. There is absolutely nothing that ought to preclude a school from letting parents in on major issues going on with children. Uh, if a child has a tummy ache that lasts for an afternoon, that merits a phone call home. But if a child rejects his or her own body, you have districts that are instructing their teachers to hide it from the parents. Uh, it, there's got to be a change. It's got to happen at the state and district level. And it's got to happen with parents waking up and realizing that parental rights 
unfortunately just cannot be taken for granted anymore. It seems like um, much of this is being forced and is almost becoming the default rather than, um, you know, having things in place to educate the children. Um, are there efforts in place for counseling, especially now that we're seeing more and more stories of regret from young people who transitioned in their adolescence and then uh, regret it? I can honestly tell you I haven't seen a single instance of the school providing counseling that would say, hey, maybe pump, pump the brakes, maybe this is the big decision and you know parents ought to be let in on it. Uh, I've seen a, a very small number of districts, honestly just three of them, that require parents to be aware of a child trying to change their gender at school. But none of them say, we're gonna sit down and really get to the bottom of what's going on with this with the student. I've seen plenty of instances where schools say, well, if a, if a child's family is unsupportive, we'll refer the family to counseling. It assumes that whatever the child says is accurate, even if that child is five years old and the parents are being utterly ignored and disrespected. What, sh what should parents know about their rights in some of these situations? Is there anything that they should know that you can advise them on? Oh my gosh, parents should know everything. I can tell you I learned personally so much in this report just by going up and looking at uh, school board policies. These schools are pretty obvious about what they do. They are not hiding the fact that they will hide a child's gender confusion or, or, or whatever you would wanna call it. Uh, so I think parents can no longer say, well, not my child, not my district. Well, I don't live in a big blue woke district, so it won't happen to me. That's not true. We found this in major cities and small towns alike uh, that are saying that they will cut parents out of something so absolutely critical. So there is really no part of the country where parents can afford to say, we're going to skip this entirely. Every parent should be looking at what their school district's rules are and making sure that if those rules cut them out, that they step up and have a say. Angela Morabito, thank you so much. Thank you. The Supreme Court is hearing a case involving Google and Section 230. Justices could decide to modify or even upend the law, which gives social media platforms protection from liability for their users' posts. Joining us now to discuss the case, we have James Chernowski, Senior Policy Analyst at Americans for Prosperity. James Chernowski, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Of course, James, uh, with regard to Section 230, uh, with the case being heard at the Supreme Court right now, where do you think things stand and what are the implications? That's a great question. I think right now with the cases being considered before the Supreme Court, what's being asked in the case of Gonzalez v. Google is whether or not platforms should be exposed to liability for making recommendations on their websites for content that users could view, right? So if you're on YouTube, imagine that the platform can now be held liable for recommending a video uh, from your organization to a user. It would not end very well because given the choice between liability and hosting your speech on the internet, uh, you know, these companies are gonna elect to go and mitigate against liability. That's what's at the core issue here. So a wrong decision would mean that I think that we'd have an internet that's a lot less connected in terms of exposing users to new viewpoints, new kinds of ideas and new people uh, that they might not otherwise be aware of. So I think that there are some very real and serious ramifications here. And I think that Brett Kavanaugh actually during the oral ar arguments kind of summed this up quite well, where there was this distinction that was attempting to be made. But, you know, what he brought up, which I thought was interesting, was he focused on the fact that we don't want to create a law that defeats itself, where it's if we're providing immunity so that they can host speech online, if we go and we put in this caveat that undermines the underlying goal of 
hosting speech, that seems to not make sense here. So I think that uh, there were some great arguments being made, and it'll be interesting to see what happens with this case looking forward. James, I really appreciate you parsing this because sometimes it does get convoluted and complicated. Um, ultimately, correct me if I'm wrong, it feels as though there's been an, just a major evolution in the media landscape, the you know uh, internet landscape, uh, since Section 230 was put into place. You didn't have social media companies at the time who now have a blatant political bias toward one direction. Does the law ultimately have to be rewritten altogether? What is the reasonable resolution here? Yeah, I don't think that amending or repealing Section 230 will go and give conservatives that are certainly angry, not unwarranted, towards these big tech companies for some of the, some of the decisions that they're making, whether that's the Hunter Biden laptop story or the way that they've handled misinformation with COVID. Uh, there are plenty of reasons that you can choose for why you could be angry at them. But Section 230 is the wrong avenue in my view. I think that you need to explore other options because Section 230 is too critical of a piece of legislation that has empowered speech online for conservatives. Broadly speaking, conservatives have booned on the internet. Uh, they haven't lost out. So I, I, would, I think trying to reform or repeal the law would be a massive mistake for conservative voices and it could be weaponized uh, by, by opponents to go and, and further you know, silence conservative voices. So I'd certainly urge against any kind of reform or repeal and focus on other other kinds of solutions. Why do you think we see so many different mixed reactions to this? And, you know, by removing Section 230, as you mentioned, some say that it may turn out to bite you with even more restrictions to free speech. You mentioned uh, Justice Kavanaugh. Could you kind of elaborate on his um, frame of thought on this? Yeah, again, I think it just boils down to this simple concept of if a company has to decide between whether hosting your speech or potentially being found liable because they hosted your speech, they will opt into the option that goes and mitigates against that risk of liability. And that's what any business is going to do because you have lawyers on staff that want to avoid a company uh, from getting into a situation where they could get sued and be found liable for damages. That's just a basic business practice, right? Uh, and I think why it's so much more important here is that it's not so much the conduct of, of the platforms that is impacted here, it's actually the underlying content of the user that's impacted here and your ability to express yourself. You lose out if these companies are found liable. We don't get to go and see new voices. You don't get the Ben Shapiros and Joe Rogans without the Section 230 protections that have been around since 1996. That's very important. And I want to see more Ben Shapiros and more Joe Rogans and more uh, you know, the Young Turks. I want to see all that. And that's not possible if we have an environment that increases the likelihood of trial attorneys going and suing everybody all the time. So let's get into the gray area here. This is, uh, you know, we've got to wrap it up kind of quickly, but at the end of the day, who should the authority be when it comes to censorship and moderation? Because ultimately you do need some moderation in terms of violence and sexual content, uh, et cetera. Yeah, I think the platform should ultimately have that moderation control when it comes to dealing with those sensitive areas. But I think ideally what you want to see is more control given to the user to set up smaller oriented communities where they can have the rules of how they want to see moderation done in their own confines. That's, I think, the ideal state. James Chernowski, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I just want to thank everybody for listening to this episode. If you enjoy our content, please leave us a rating and a review as it really goes a long way in helping us spread the truth. Until next time, I'm your host, Steve Lance at NTD, and we'll see you soon.